You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Welcome to Season 5 of the Dramatist Guild Presents Talkback. I'm your host, Christine Toy Johnson. This season is all about how we can challenge the status quo and not only expand the canon of what plays are taught, read, programmed, and used to define the idea of what classics are, but also to ignite it with new actionable strategies. To me, this is not about canceling the existing canon. It's about being intentional about how we make space for additional, diverse, and inclusive stories, as well as reimagining often produced ones, so that the American landscape of storytelling is truly reflective of the gorgeous tapestry of people that inhabit it. In our first episode of this season, we'll talk to playwrights and educators Stephen Kaplan and Julianne Wick Davis about how they've guided their students to look beyond the existing canon for inspiration and how the Guild is creating resources for educators to help expand their own curricula. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to get to talk to you both. Um, Will you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Julianne, we'll start with you. Sure. My name is Julianne Wick Davis, and I'm a musical theater writer, composer, lyricist, and also musical theater writer, educator. Thank you, Stephen. Hi, my name is Stephen Kaplan. I am a playwright and also uh, an educator. I've taught and written (laughs) for most of my life. I also serve on the Dramatist Guild Council and am the co-chair of the Education Committee for the Guild. Great. Thank you so much. This season is all about igniting the canon. And what that means to me is not canceling the existing canon, but expanding it. That includes, of course, talking about how plays are taught. And because you're both playwrights and educators, I wanted to ask you about your perspectives on this. Stephen, I'll start with you since you are the chair of the committee. In your experience, how has the work been to try to introduce educators at all different levels to new and additional voices? 
It's been very enthusiastic as far as the response from educators. I think living in both sides of this, of being an educator as well as a writer, educators are hungry for it, for resources, for opportunities. When I came on board as a co-chair about two years ago, and prior to my coming on, the focus had been a lot of universities and colleges and I'm really excited that we've been looking at high schools and middle schools just because that's when you get them excited about theater. It's been a really exciting time just trying to reach as many educators as possible. And how have you gone about that, finding the people you want to talk to and reaching out and introducing them to people or ideas? It's been a little tricky just because a lot of people don't think about the Guild as being a resource for teachers. We've been partnering with organizations that are already doing this work to really try to reach teachers, like the Association for Theater and Higher Education, Educational Theater Association, American Alliance for Theater and Education, and basically just saying, hey, we're here, and finding out what are they already doing and what we can do to add to the conversation. I I have to say, and part of the reason I'm excited to be doing the work I'm doing is that As an educator, this is newer work for me. I relied a lot on early on in my teaching career, like you said, the canon, what's already what already existed and the things that I was taught, which was a lot of dead white men. (laughs) So when I started teaching, that was I taught what I was taught. Over the years, have started getting more excited about introducing new voices, finding different ways to do that. But every day, I'm inspired by other teachers too, and looking for ways to shake things up for myself, for my classroom. And it's been, it's reinvigorated me as a teacher. And it's reminded me about why I teach, which is to get every single student's voice out there and make them recognize how important their voices are. And exposing them to more diverse writers only serves to do that. Thank you, Stephen. Julianne, I'd love to know more about your experiences as an educator. Yeah, I spent 20 years teaching all levels in public education and in the arts and now teaching at the university level and teaching writers about the craft. I think the challenge I have found personally and for those of my colleagues is finding the time to do the research and sometimes that desire to expose students to the work that is not currently acknowledged as part of the canon can be a challenge because they don't know where to look. And then where do you find the work that is not currently published and those places that are creating new theater and how to connect the educators to those resources and those writers? I think it's really important what you say about finding the ways to connect the educators to the resources, but how can we inspire um, other educators to find the resources and help them do that? I think the inspiration comes from reminding teachers why they're doing what they're doing the and the reasons for doing the work and doing the research. Because once once you get them understanding why it's so important, you get them excited and energized about it. And it's for the future of theater. It's not just for the semester that you have those kids. It is about how we create a future generation of theater goers and theater makers. And that's the whole philosophy about exposing students to work where they can see themselves, they can see their stories, and they can see stories that aren't theirs as well because it 
only makes for a richer landscape. And it's an investment in the future, which is hopefully why people are teachers and educators. There's an investment in the future. And so I think understanding and connecting teachers to the why of it makes the, because the research is hard sometimes. We're trying to do as much as we can to make it easy. But once you understand why we're doing these things, it becomes more, it's like a treasure hunt. <laughs> so there's an excitement to it, hopefully. Yeah, I just to add to that, because what Stephen is saying is, I totally agree with it's like getting people excited about using that art form to serve their learning outcomes. And so what really excites me is being able to inspire educators to do that. And also there are the kids that are already in their theater class. And yes, they're reading plays and they have that exposure, but there are kids that are that don't even know about theater yet and how exciting it can be. And I think bringing plays into those classrooms, history, English, even beyond that, language classes, to help them just see what the power of theater can do. Great. Thank you. I want to talk about how there's this vicious circle involved in which writers from historically excluded communities may not have had as many productions, so they don't get published, so they don't get read by the sectors of students that could benefit from knowing about them. And also the reality of the budgetary concerns of trying to find the plays to read. I've heard that some educators are looking for anthologies because that cuts down on the on the cost of, multi, of single scripts. And yet also I've been told that anthologies don't really sell well, so there's not a motivation to create and sell them as much by the quote-unquote mainstream publishers. How can we reconcile people's needs in that way? I know that's a very big question. And if you can solve it here, <laughs> that's a gold, triple gold star for both of you. But I would love to know your insight on that. Stephen, <laughs> I feel like this is a really, <laughs> it's a complicated question. And I don't know, I don't necessarily have the answer to that. But I think there are ways to gather work of new writers, but then the question that comes to my mind is how do we get their work out there to people that normally they would not have that exposure, like you said, but then how do we protect those writers and compensate those writers? Do we make it a choice as to how they then share their work with others? I think that's like, to me, is the question that comes to mind. I think people would be very excited to be a part of, you know, some kind of directory or listing resource, but then how do we not abuse these writers and their work? Does that make sense? Yes, very. that's a very good point, yeah. Stephen, you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I have many thoughts. Hey, it's, the anthology thing is, I think, is a is a great thing when there, and there are some anthologies out there that exist that are, more diverse writers, but with any kind of publishing, you're out of date pretty quickly by the time something gets to the publisher. It also perpetuates very much something of that is that theater exists in New York City. The plays that tend to get published tend to belong to a certain stratosphere. And that's also, I think, very damaging. And I think that there are ways to connect with writers that maybe aren't published through things like New Play Exchange, through local writers in your own area. And I think that's something that teachers 
often forget about, that there, there are writers everywhere. And to study their work, to understand this is somebody who's from the community that these kids are from, is another great opportunity. And what Julianne said about compensating the writers is really important. And I think that's something that we need to make sure that if a teacher is sharing PDFs of the plays, you know, that the writer is being compensated and that it's not something that's not happening just because they think, oh, it's not published, therefore I don't need to purchase something. But it could actually end up being more economical for the school as well as the writer because the writer is not having to deal with the publisher. They're getting something directly from them. But it also is just a way to to think outside of the box of what the normal publishers are expecting us to do. I really love what you said about going into your local communities. I think that is such a great idea. I know that whenever I've been invited to a class, whether it's a playwriting class or an acting class or whatever kind of class to share my own work, it's exciting for me too to be able to to share the work in that space and with students who are curious about it. And I love that you brought that up and hope that we can amplify that idea as much as possible. It helps the, the, the students realize that, that this is something they can do, and this is something real, whether they want to be writers themselves or just recognize the importance of writers, that, that, that there is somebody behind that page. I do think when people can put a face to the writer and they understand it's an actual person that's sharing their work, that's also really important. Could you talk a little bit more about the initiatives the Education Committee is taking on to address some of these issues? Yeah, we're, we've been putting together a frequently asked questions doc for teachers and educators about copyright. Not to scold, but to say, we're sure you're doing, you want to do the right thing, and this is how you do it. Trying to make it as easy as possible for them, just in one place to be able to, if a teacher says, do I need to pay for a play if I'm studying it in class? Do I need to pay for it if I'm doing a scene from it in class? All of these things that that come up. And for the most part, it's yes, but there are certain exceptions for that. One of the other things that we've done is really we're trying to build out an educator's resource page on the Guild's website that is not behind a paywall, is accessible to anybody out there that has tons of resources for educators. We have our Expanding the Canon list where we've started calling from other places who have created lists of more diverse works. We also have our What I'm Teaching Now column in The Dramatist where educators of all different levels sharing very practical advice, things that worked for them. I'll share with the thing that I wrote about was how I have been teaching Mother Courage and Her Children forever and then because of one of the lists that we have, a swap list. If you're teaching this play, why not try this play? And I still taught Mother Courage, but also taught Lynn Nottage's play Ruined. And it broke everything apart in such an amazing way. My students still got the that canonical work, but something else very current, very relevant, and it unlocked for them things in both plays, and then just a pitch out there. Any educator who wants to share something, we're always looking for new ideas and new columns. But these are some of the initiatives that the, the Guild has been working on. I find it so exciting, actually, what the Dramatist Guild is doing with this. I think where that swap list is on that list of plays and musicals to help create a more inclusive canon. And there's a lot of really wonderful lists there that I just was so excited to discover but specifically that swap list, what I loved was 
looking at what is in the canon and what you can do to replace and having that kind of resource just saves them an incredible, incredible amount of time in being able to reach these objectives that we're all talking about instead of finding it such a challenge that they maybe don't embrace it in the way that they wish that they could. I love that. It's so important, right, to point people in the right direction so they can find things that they need. And I'm really happy to hear about all that work. Stephen, I want to circle back a little bit to what you said earlier about talking to the younger kids and the younger students. And have you found that by introducing them to all of these new plays, that it sparks that writing instinct? Oh my gosh, it's the spark is why we do it. I have been even more surprised than I thought I would be. I thought, oh, these are going to work. These are going to go over well. But the excitement that the students have in in seeing things that feel even more real to them because they're newer, they are speaking to topics that that they can connect to, they understand suddenly, oh my gosh, theater is not just something that I'm studying that's from the past. It is something very alive and now and breathing. And what's exciting also is I've, I love pairing up plays with the, the, the Boussico's Octoroon and Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' Octoroon. And the students looking and going, oh my gosh, theater talks to each other. All art talks to each other. And they see themselves as now being part of a conversation and not just studying something that other people have done, but that it gives them a whole lot more stake in it as well. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back. Julianne Wick-Davis discusses how important it is to share new works with her students. I'm not working with younger students. I'm working with grad students. And I think that so often with using the canon that people think the art form has to be one particular thing. So what is really exciting is when we can find work that we can share that has not been in the general community yet, and that challenges the art form, breaks open the art form in some way is is really helpful and exciting to them to understand that they there are so many possibilities in what they can create themselves. That's awesome. And yes, yeah, so important to be able to see stories about people that resemble you or your family. That's it's enlightening when you find a theater that does that. So we're in this period of time where so many, so many places, states, governments, 
are trying to take away the window on certain histories, right? They're trying to censor the education of certain things that have happened in history. And it what really excites me about talking to playwrights is that you really understand how it's the storytellers and the playwrights that are going to be able to give the history back. And I wonder if you could talk about that and if you are finding any pushback from any teachers around you or communities around you when you are trying to teach plays that might open up controversial themes or stories? I've been very blessed (laughs) just at the schools that I've taught at have been predominantly performing arts high schools or schools that have a strong foundation in the arts and so are supportive of that. I have heard from colleagues in other states or in other schools. It is tricky. The thing that, you know, especially in districts where curriculum has to be approved or board approved to get a play, because plays sometimes all literature can sometimes push buttons, and it should push buttons. It is tricky. I wish I had a magic wand and a way to to fix that. I know that so many of the people that are in education, that are in theater, that they are the brave ones that are, are pushing back against those that are trying to silence the work that is really important right now for students to be aware of. I feel a little removed from those areas I used to teach years ago in in an area that was very conservative and there was always some questions about things, but I never came across anything that was shut down in, in what I did, but certainly there would be some questions about things, but it's it gotten so much more challenging. Uh, what kinds of challenges are you running up against that are different today than maybe 10 years ago? For me, the challenges I think today are I'm not personally experiencing. I'm seeing other communities experiencing that I don't think were there back 10 years ago where I think people were a little bit more, I don't, less focused on the idea of silencing and censoring. And it has really surprised me that in the last couple of years that this has become, it seems like we're going backwards in that regard. I think there's a a feeling of, obviously, we need to, within our classrooms, keep our students safe. But the the pushback that I've had from students has been only actually when I haven't, when I personally haven't properly introduced them and done my groundwork ahead of time. For the most part, when when I say, hey, I know that this is going to be something that is meant to challenge you and you're not going to agree with and that's okay, or you may be confused by, they're much more willing to go on the ride when I preface it that way. And I'm not necessarily talking about trigger warnings or anything like that, um, which can be very helpful in a lot of situations. But I find that the pushback I ever get is only if I haven't done my homework that way, if I haven't done my job that way in prepping them and reminding them that art is meant to be provocative and to sometimes make you slightly uncomfortable. I also make sure I'm teaching high school students that I'm finding work that is 
on an appropriate level for them, but but is pushing them slightly to think maybe about something a little bit different. That's a pushback that I've had with that and to remind them that they don't have to like it. And that also the fact that I'm sharing it with them doesn't mean that I like it, but that I think that when I allow them to disagree with the material, it's actually I think I'm doing part of my job and reminding them that's what all art is. I think acknowledging what might be problematic of some of the work in light of the room that you're in, because I find every cohort has the ecosystem of content warnings and what they are willing to not necessarily not acknowledge, but maybe be able to get beyond what is problematic so that they can look at the craft. That is always, when teaching the craft, that I think has been the most challenging is saying, yes, I understand that this particular piece of art has, in the time that it was written, it now is problematic, but there is value in looking at this one moment because it does this thing that I think is important for you to understand in the craft and saying that I don't expect you to agree with everything. And again, like Stephen, then to say you don't have to like it, but please try to be objective. And sometimes, you know, students are able to do that. And sometimes they have such a strong emotional reaction to it that they're not able to think beyond that emotion and what it is that they find really troubling about it. I think the the conversation about content warnings, because I have students that are creating work and we talk about this at the beginning of the year about being respectful of other people's experiences and traumas and that when you are presenting work to make sure that they do give those content warnings so that people can decide for themselves if they want to be present in the room or if they feel like they need to step out. And some students are writing things that are really incredibly interesting, very personal, and sometimes very dark and have very difficult subject matter. But I'm not interested in censoring anyone or telling them that they can't write something. They have to do their homework to be able to defend questions about what they're writing. And as long as they're not hurting someone else with their writing and punching down that they are allowed to bring in anything that they want. It has made the content warning piece very important in the classroom. And I think I would just piggyback on what, what Julian was talking about, this in creating an atmosphere in the room where the the students feel comfortable talking and talking to each other. That's, again, what we want to try to do as educators is that is create a place where if there is pushback, that it is respectful and that we can all learn from it as well, because it's something that is ongoing. Thank you both so much. That's really, it's really wonderful to hear your approach to creating a space where there is creativity and openness and open communication. I think it's so important too. Is there anything else that you would like 
to that I haven't brought up that you would like to talk about? I would just share that it just to keep encouraging teachers to to do this work. It's I've been teaching for 25 years now and it's reinvigorated me. It's gotten me more excited about what I'm teaching and how I'm teaching it, not just to shake up my curriculum for the sake of shaking it up, but to keep communicating with my students. And the rewards are huge to be able to do this. And while it does take work, there are resources out there and and opportunities to make it work. And I would add to that that I would also encourage those organizations that are creating new work or nurturing new work and new writers to think about how they can help teachers implement that work in, into their classroom and connect them with the writers, connect them with the work. Again, it just comes down to those resources. And I think there are a lot of theaters out there that they're, that is their mission. Musical Theater Factory is one that I think about that it really is doing what they say. In addition to making those opportunities for these writers that have not had the opportunities before, but then also let's make lists of these people. Let's find ways to connect for people to find these writers beyond just waiting for them to have some kind of opportunity that that puts them on the forefront. I think that's a, something that I think is a real call to these theaters and places like the National Alliance for Musical Theater. They have hundreds of submissions of new work every year. And is there a resource they can provide to educators? And then the places that are creating that have new musical theater writers and playwrights. Is there a way to have a resource to, again, connect the writers to the educators? And and it doesn't have to be throwing out everything you've been doing. If you do, if you had one new text, you've done a huge world of difference already. You know, that it's, it's, you can take tiny steps and they're going to, they're going to pay off in dividends. Thank you both so much for joining me. You've given us so much food for thought, and I really appreciate your generosity and your insight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to my guests, Stephen Kaplan and Julianne Wick-Davis. You can find the Guild's material for educators by visiting www.dramatistguild.com and search for Educator. Season 5 of Talkback has just begun, and we have so much more to bring you. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. This episode was produced by Amy Von Masick and me, Christine Toy Johnson. Our music was composed by Andrea Daly, recorded at John Marshall Media in New York City. Special thanks to Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco, California. The Dramatist Guild Presents Talkback is a production of the Dramatist Guild of America and distributed by the Broadway Podcast Network. Let us know what you thought about the episode by using hashtag DGTalkback. As always, to be continued.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.